Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Thanks very much for coming along. Today we have with us Professor Colin McCarris from the Department of International Business and Asian Studies. Colin is going to talk to us about implications for China's international relations from the disturbances in Tibet, uh, the Xinjiang uh, province. And uh, he's going to argue that these troubles have created both pluses and minuses for China's international uh, relations with other states. Mm. Exactly. Thanks very much, Michael. So what uh, is this about? Well, in um, 2008, in uh, March and April, there were some disturbances in the Tibetan areas of China, um, <clears throat> all over the Tibetan areas. Not, they were not localised. Um, in July 2009, there, was, um, there were big uh, riots in Urumqi, which is the capital of Xinjiang. Now, uh, that, that um, is the map. Um, Xinjiang is up here, Urumqi is up there, and uh, the Tibetan areas cover these um, quite large areas in, in, um, in, in China, in southwestern China. I just want to emphasise one is very localised. That's the one in, Sin, in Urumqi, in Xinjiang. The others are not so localised. They're all over the Tibetan areas. What I want to do is to analyse these effects on China's international relations, including drawing attention to particular countries, and make some evaluation about the effects on international relations uh, along the lines that Michael have been saying. Uh, now, the Tibetans and the Uyghurs, I just want to say who they are. They're two ethnic minorities in China, uh, and you can see the populations uh, for the Tibetans according to the 2005 sample census, 7.4 million uh, approximately Tibetans, and um, Uyghurs um, approximately 9.5 million. Um, the Uyghurs are Turkic, they speak a Turkic language, and they're Muslims. The Tibetans are, um, believe in Tibetan Buddhism, and they have a very characteristic culture. Um, where do they live? Uh, they live in the place that I've just been saying. This, this here, this is the Uyghurs. These ones in the south and southern part of Xinjiang, and the Tibetans all over these Tibetan areas. They both have quite extensive uh, places where they live. And in both cases, re their religion matters a great deal to them. And in both cases, uh, they have important cultures, the survival of which is a very controversial issue in contemporary um, affairs. Right. Now, as far as China in the 20th century is in terms of its international relations, it's a rising power, I think that's um, everybody knows, uh, and rising very substantially beyond um, expectations, especially in the, f in the first half, the first decade or so of the 21st century. And I've mentioned there the Shanghai Cooperation Organization because one of the multilateral organisations to which it's become attached has been the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation, which began through meetings of presidential level in April 1996. And then they developed, uh, well, that, that at first was called the Shanghai Five, but in June 2001, um, that is a few months before the September 11th incident, um, that developed into the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation, which links or which gets cooperation with um, China, Russia, several of the Central Asian countries, especially Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, um, Uzbekistan has been added, and um, a few other places as well. 
uh, and it's quite relevant to, to this paper, the fact that China has uh, gone out of its way to get good relations with those, um, those countries. Now, China's relations with the U.S. are very important in just about any context you like to mention. It's been very unstable, but there have been quite a few common interests, including in the, what Bush called the War on Terror. Um, but um, it's, it's, they're, they're common interests uh, in the sense that China has been involved in this War on Terror too because there have been some terrorist incidents in, in Xinjiang. However, they've also had some um, di divergences of opinion um, for example, as far as Iraq was concerned, China was very critical of, of the Western American intervention in, in Iraq. Uh, Islamism, that is um, Muslim fundamentalist views, um, has been uh, growing in Central Asian countries, especially in Uzbekistan, and there are several organizations there that are, that are really quite important and which uh, China has been very uh, much opposed to, and so have the governments in those um, countries uh, been opposed to. Now, I just want to mention diasporas because the, both the Tibetans and the Uyghurs have diasporas which have tried to exert influence. The Tibetan one is much more important and it's been going for a long time. It's been going, it's been become quite influential, especially since the late 1980s when the Tibetan issue became more internationalised than it had been before, and, in, and above all since 1989 when the Dalai Lama was given the Nobel Peace Prize, and um, that was very much to China's annoyance. And uh, since then, China has had a rather... Well, Tibet has been an irritant in China's relations with all the Western countries since then, and I'll, I'll come back, of course. This is just background at the moment, what I'm talking about. I'll be especially focusing on the riots and the uh, disturbances in 2008 later on when I'm talking about the Tibetans. Now, as far as the world, the Uyghurs are concerned, they have been much slower and much less effective in um, their diaspora, uh, getting their diasporas influential in the West and other um, overseas countries. Well, apart from the Muslim countries, of course, they've been, and especially Turkey, that's been, um, there's been quite a few Uyghurs um, there, um, and some, of, some other countries, especially, well, Germany has, been, has, has had some uh, Uyghur diaspora, but much newer than in the case of the Tibetans. The Uyghur um, diaspora um, organisations tended to be very fractured, but in 2004... They came together to form the World Uyghur Congress through a large-scale meeting in Munich. And they have tried to increase their influence steadily since then. Uh, I would say that in the West, they're not very influential by comparison with the Tibetans. And there are various reasons for that, partly because they don't have a, a, um, a recognised leader to anything like the extent that the Tibetans do. And I'll be saying about Rebya Kadir, who is the one who's become the, the president of the World Uyghur Congress now. The Dalai Lama has been very influential. I think that's very well known. And it's also um, the, the issues of whether political leaders should meet with him. Um, has become a big issue in China's international relations um, and in its, its uh, relations with specific countries which uh, greet the, the, um, the Dalai Lama. And that's especially the case with the United States, but not by any means only the United States. The issues about that matter, the Chinese reckon that it's an issue of sovereignty. Anyone, political leader who meets with the Dalai Lama is questioning Chinese sovereignty over Tibet. 
But of course, as far as the, those Western and other leaders are concerned, issues are about whether the human rights in Tibet are being um, looked after properly, and the Western powers are very critical of uh, human rights issues in Tibet. Um, but also, they are generally they are very keen that the China should have dialogue, meaningful dialogue, and negotiations with the Dalai Lama. That the the fact of the dialogue is part of my brief today, but the um, issues in the dialogue are a very, very uh, separate um, and very complicated matter. Now, so Rebia Kadir, she is, um, she used to be a very well-known and very rich businesswoman in, in Xinjiang. Uh, she was the richest person in Xinjiang, for, uh, but she was put in prison for, uh, for a variety of reasons, which are mostly fake, I think, but I'm not going to go into them now. But she was let out in um, 2005, early on, the, and allowed to go to the U.S. on the condition that she didn't take part in politics. She immediately ignored that, regarding it as a kind of Faustian bargain. And anyway, I think there was pressure on her to, to take part in politics. Anyway, she has taken part in politics. And she became the president of the Uyghur American Association and the World Uyghur Congress both in 2006, and she's become a kind of um, figurehead and representative of the Uyghur diaspora. Now, I'm first of all going to talk about the Tibetan... That's just a bit of background. I'm going to talk about the Tibetan areas now. Now, one of the things about these disturbances in March and April 2008 was that they took place just before the Olympic Games, which was in August. And many people in the West thought it was it would be good, Amnesty International and bodies like that, wanted to use this as a way of putting the spotlight on, on human rights abuses in, um, in Tibet, which the, the Chinese, of course, reacted very angry against that because they were very keen that this um, Olympic Games, the Beijing Olympics, should be a success. And there were disturbances of sorts about the um, Olympic torch as it went and made its progress around the world and toward Beijing to arrive there on the 8th of August, which, which did happen. But one that got a lot of notice was um, a big scuffle in Paris when a Tibet free, free, act free Tibet activist, I'm not sure exactly what the right word would be, but manhandled, anyway, attacked in, in some way a, a paraplegic um, athlete, a Chinese paraplegic athlete, who was carrying the torch at that um, case. Now, that, that incident and similar ones to it in other parts of, um, including in Canberra, for example, and Seoul and other places, um, aroused a, a wave of Chinese nationalism throughout the world who wanted to defend the Olympic torch because they wanted the, the Chinese Olympics um, to, be, to be successful. But it also had negative effects because many of those countries were particularly keen to use it, as I said, to encourage dialogue between the Chinese government and, and the Dalai Lama's um, Tibetan government in exile. They were not um, keen to assuage China about this. In the first instance, the European Union passed a resolution urging China to resume dialogue for real autonomy with the Dalai Lama. That was on the 10th of March 2009, and that was to mark the 50th anniversary of the rebellion against Chinese rule, which happened on, began on the 10th of March 1959. Now, I think it's interesting to note that, in fact, this is just before the main riots took place. Uh, they were a few days after this. But there, was a, there had already been something. Of course, the U European Union did this um, because they wanted to mark that 50th anniversary. 
Of course, China immediately rejected it. The European Union felt quite strongly about this. Now, it's, it's important to note, and maybe it will be known to everybody here, but it, I think it's interesting. The European Union tends to take up positions which are very... Um, they're, they're very aligned with an idealistic view of um, international relations, and they are not... They don't care about the practicalities nearly so much. Individual states, on the other hand, do care about practicalities. And the, um, that, that, it's for that reason that often individual states take different views from what the European Union does. We've seen an example of this over the Roma just, just in the last day or so, because the European Union is taking a very different view from France about the expulsion of the, of the Roma. Anyway, the country that was really um, very closely involved about this was France. There were many groups that wished to boycott the opening ceremony of the Olympics, and they wanted France to do that, because at that time Sarkozy was the president, or about to become the president of the, um, of the European Union. Sarkozy said he would boycott the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games unless the Chinese undertook meaningful dialogue with the Dalai Lama. That was, that was his condition. He wanted to use this to, to press for that, and so there were a lot of groups that um, did that as well. In the end, the Chinese did open dialogue with the Dalai Lama again, but it didn't get anywhere. Sarkozy did attend the uh, opening ceremony, as a lot of the leaders did, and um, he seemed to get on with it quite well. There was a big boycott against the Carrefour, which is a French chain, in, in, in um, Beijing itself, but it didn't last very long because most of the Chinese, re they, they like Carrefour, you know. There's, it's very big in uh, China and you can get lots of things there. Um, it's not particularly French. I, I find it a bit disappointing, to be honest, but I think um, there's lots of um, interesting foreign goods that you can, that you can get there. That boycott wasn't going to last for a long time, I don't think. Now, later on in the year, the Dalai Lama wanted to meet with Sarkozy. This is after... The Olympic Games were finished, and he did meet with them in Poland. China reacted by cancelling proposed meeting of the European Union with China, which was to be, to be held at uh, Lyon. Short, he, they cancelled at a short notice. Now, that seemed to suggest that it was sort of even, so to speak. They were in a kind of war, a, a silent, uh, well, a, a non-violent war, in which they were both uh, trying to bait each other, it seems to me, and they were both trying to push how far they could go. Now, what happened later seemed to me to suggest that the Chinese got the better of it, because there was a meeting of the G20, Group of 20, in, um, in London, which both Hu Jintao, the President of China, and the General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, and Sarkozy were present, and they met on the sidelines, and they talked about Tibet, and they issued a communique about Tibet, which part of which is um, quoted up there. France fully recognises the importance and sensitivity of the Tibet issue and reaffirms its adherence to the One China policy and the position that Tibet is an integral part of the Chinese territory. It went on with quite a lot of other <coughs> strong language, by the way, recalling how de Gaulle had been quite uh, pro-China in terms of Tibet and that they would never change that position. Uh, Sarkozy said he would never change that uh, position that uh, de Gaulle has adopted. Uh, and that, as far as I know, is the current situation. But I would like to note that the, whether 
the Dalai Lama meets with these presidents and political leaders is going to be an ongoing issue for both China and I think other places for the foreseeable future. Now, as far as Britain is concerned, Britain is, this is it's also complex and, and, and interesting and important. Britain, it was, it was seeming to side with France over this. Uh, Gordon Brown, the, then Prime Minister, he, did, uh, he went to the, the, the closing ceremony. He didn't go to the opening ceremony. And he wanted the Chinese to also undertake dialogue. He wasn't quite as high profile as Sarkozy, but he did um, push this forward too. Merkel didn't go at all. She was, she was the, the strongest about this. She, she's quite anti-China, and uh, well, according to the Chinese, like that. And she, she wouldn't see it like that, of course. She would see it in terms of, um, of espousing human rights more strongly. But I think what is interesting is that Britain has had quite a long relationship with China about Tibet because it was India was a, a British colony for so long. And in 1913-14, there was a very big meeting, which included the Chinese government. It, it also included the Dalai Lama, the 13th Dalai Lama at that time, and the, the British, uh, who were in control of India. And it went on for months. It then eventually it broke off without agreement because the, the, China, the um, British got in, were involved in the First World War, which is far more important to them, far closer to home. But the main point about the similar conference was to sort out the status of Tibet, whether it should be in, part of in, in China, what kind of relationship it would have with China. Anyway, the, the, what the British thought was that it was an autonomous entity. Now, the difference between that and sovereignty is not absolutely clear. But there is a whole series of issues of which a very important one is the right to station troops, okay, and what is included in Tibetan areas. What, really what I'm leading up to is to say that in October 2008, that is just after the negotiations between the Chinese and the Dalai Lama collapsed, just after, the, China, the British upgraded their suzerainty, they recognised suzerainty, Chinese suzerainty over Tibet, to sovereignty. Okay? Now that is a much fuller statement and it includes things like what I've just been saying. And what is Tibet, you know, and, what, um, and whether you can station troops, um, immigration, who controls what. Very, very complicated. I don't have time to go into. But for, that, for the Chinese that was a major concession by the British that they would, um, they would do that. That's the point I want to make. Now, as far as the U US is concerned, that's another very important Western country, the most important Western and other country. Bush did, he never changed his mind about whether he would attend the opening ceremony. And he seemed, because he was on the way out at that stage, um, he knew he was, his term was um, just about over. And he had nothing to gain. He wanted to go to the opening ceremony. He wanted to support the American. He didn't, he didn't really care about that, um, all those Dalai Lama things anymore. Although he had just been very provocative to the Chinese the year before by giving him a medal, a medal of honour, Congressional Medal of Honour, which was the, the biggest one that you could get. But I think by, by the time the Olympic Games came round, came round, he was more interested in you know, taking part and, and, um, and, and being seen to take part and to support the American side. 
Now, when Obama came in, of course, which was um, January of the next year, 2009, he seemed at first to be very conciliatory towards the Chinese over the question of Tibet and over the question of these disturbances. And he explicitly recognised Tibet as, China, as part of China while he was in... He made a visit to China in um, November. However, when the Dalai Lama came to Washington February this year, Obama was much less conciliatory towards the Chinese. He went out of his way to meet with the Dalai Lama, despite the fact that China had been protesting. He said it was um, his, his duty to meet. He was... Um, he wasn't recognising, he wasn't um, going back on Chinese sovereignty, he wanted to support, and he, did, he, th he would be meeting with who he, he wanted in his own country. Now, I think that there were heavy pressures on Obama to do this, uh, and that Obama, whether it was his, of course, it was his, ultimately it was his decision, but I think there were a lot of people in the Democrat um, Party who were saying to him, you've really got to take a, a you know, if you can't cut out of China on this matter. Just before, um, I might have mentioned earlier that Nancy Pelosi, who was the, the, the chairman of the House, um, and in theory the third person in the presidential line after the president and the vice president get knocked off in some way, then, then that one comes, becomes. She had actually gone to meet with the Dalai Lama after those disturbances occurred in 2008 and had offered him support. And I think she and various others were putting quite strong pressure on, on Obama to do this. I guess what I'm really saying is that those concessions that I, know, that I already noted about France and Britain, at first they seemed to apply to the Americans too, the, um, the US, but, uh, but later on they did not. And as of now, the, the US is, um, is taking quite a, quite a strong line that is different from the British and the French. Now, we talked about India a bit last, year, last week. And if you're talking about foreign relations with respect to these my, my, you know, the ethnic areas, Tibetans and Uyghurs, India is really important. In a way, it's the most important, other than the ones I've just been talking about, well, maybe even more important than France, really. But India-China relations are very unstable. They're both countries with very long and remarkable histories and cultures. They're both rising, as we know now. China's doing much better at the moment than India, but they're both doing well. And I think that they both see each other as rivals, and they will always see each other as rivals, even when they're on good terms with each other. Just recently, I would say that um, Indian, the Indian view about China has got less good. And the Indians are very suspicious about the Chinese. There was um, um, in the Indian Defence Review, the editor, a man called Bharat Verma, he wrote, um, this was in July last year, he wrote an article in which he predicted that China would launch an attack on India before 2012. Okay, well that's one view. It's not necessarily the only view, of course. But I think it shows a quite strong fear of China within India, which I think is probably getting stronger at the moment. Now why India has become so important very recently is because there's an area of India which is very close to, to Tibet, a place called Dawang, it's Arunachal Pradesh, and it was part of Tibet 
it was ceded to British India in this similar conference that I was talking about before in, um, in 1914. And consequently, it became part of India when India got its independence from, from Britain. Now, the, there's a, in, in Taiwan, there's a, it's, there are not many people there. It's not a very significant place, except that it's very close to China. But it has a very big Tibetan Buddhist monastery. And uh, when the Dalai Lama left China in 1959 after the failed rebellion in March, he visited this place, Taiwan, and he's been there a couple of times since. But they made a point of, of inviting him there in November 2009, last year. And, and the Chinese were very angry about this because they thought it was provocative of him to go there in a, at a time when, when this, um, these disturbances had taken place and they were blaming him for the unrest uh, and his clique, they called the Dalai clique. But what I think is, is interesting is that the Indian government sided with the local government, made a point of being very polite to him, and the Dalai Lama got a rapturous welcome am among the people, and it didn't do anything to help um, China-Indian relations. I want to go on to the other, the other part now. Rebia Kadir, she was blamed for the riots by China. Western media blamed Chinese oppression against the Uyghurs, and they blamed the Chinese for trying to stamp out Uyghur culture. And when the riots occurred, July 2009, the World Uyghur Congress, of which this woman is the president, Rebya Kadir is the president, they put out very um, statements extremely different from the Chinese view, blaming the Chinese for all the riots and, and for mishandling an event in Guangdong that had occurred um, just a couple of weeks before the, um, the riots erupted in, in, in Urumqi. Now, why this affects foreign relations is because uh, Westerners tended to be more sympathetic to her side. It's actually very complex. I hope I can get a bit about the complexity. But where she became noted is because of her film called The Ten Conditions of Love, which was very much, um, it's a documentary. I don't know if any of you have seen it, because it was, it was already telecast. And it very much takes her side. When it became known that this was going to be shown at the Melbourne International Film Festival and that she herself was going to give a speech to launch it, to pre the premiere, the Chinese consul asked the um, organisers well, to withdraw the film, which they obviously refused to do. There were, the Chinese reacted by pulling some of their own films. There was a very big controversy about it. She, Rebia Kadir, gave a speech at the National Press Club in Canberra. The Chinese uh, attacked the Australian government for allowing her to come and for giving her a visa to give this terrorist, they, they regard her as a terrorist, um, a visa, which the Australian government said she was, um, they'd looked into it, they didn't think she was a terrorist. There was very big reaction in China and Australia and really big furor um, that revolved around this, um, this woman. Now, what is the net result? Of course, we don't know. That nothing is final. What's happened that now is Rebia Kadir has become quite well known in Australia and she's become a sort of grandmotherly type of hero. People like Greg Sheridan write articles about her, and, and uh, not, it's not only him, but uh, she's, she's become much better known. And in that sense, it was very, very counterproductive um, on, as far as the Chinese were concerned. The damage has been done to Australia-China relations. It seems to me, however, it's temporary. 
in October 2009, the Vice Premier Lee Ko-chang visited Australia and they talked about this issue. And um, Stephen Smith, who was then the Foreign Minister, made polite remarks about it and said, well, we understand China's point of view and we don't want to recognise um, this woman as um, you know, anything other than a, a, a Uyghur visitor. And it seems as though the thing was smoothed over. The, um, Zhang, Zhang Junsai, who was the ambassador then, and he's just left actually, but he was the ambassador then, he gave a, a, an interview to Rowan Kalek, who is um, a well-known journalist in The Australian, who was spent a long time in China. Um, it was uh, published last uh, Saturday in The Weekend Australian, in which he said that this meeting had broken the ice, he said, and that relations had, been, had come back to normal. So, I mean, in that sense, it, it, its result doesn't seem to be too long-lasting. But I think one other thing is very interesting. The Australian Broadcasting Corporation wanted to screen this film and they said they had a contract with the director of the film to do that. The Chinese tried to pressure them not to show it, and the uh, director appealed to the ABC and said, you can't give in to this Chinese pressure. What happened was that the Chinese pulled their neck in. They elected not to make any fuss about it. The thing was screened in May, but it made no fuss at all. There was no, no reaction. And so what I think is that the, the Chinese had learned from their mistake the previous time when they, they fasted, all, all it had done was to make the, the thing better known. And that by, by not commenting at all on this matter, they got what they wanted in effect. Now, I just want to talk about Muslim countries for a bit, because Muslim-majority countries, because these are quite interesting. In essence, I would say that states have been very silent about this. These riots. I'm now talking about the riots in July last year. Okay, states have been very silent. Popular groups and commentators have pretended to be much more critical of China. States and governments have their own reasons why they they don't want to anger China, mainly because they have growing economic relations, and also China has growing influence. And also, in some cases, they may want Chinese support very badly. And the example that I want to mention is Iran. I just want to remind that the elections, you remember that there were elections in June last year, just before these riots happened in, in uh, Xinjiang. Of course, there's no connection, but that, that defeat, it certainly influenced Ahmadinejad and what his, uh, what his reaction was going to be. Um, he wanted Chinese, he wanted somebody not to be attacking him over how the uh, June elections had uh, turned out, you know, with all the, the riots that had been and the suppression that had been um, uh, carried out by the state against um, the people who were protesting against the way the, the elections were, um, were conducted. It, it's also significant that Iran, in the last couple of years, has expanded its economic relations with China enormously. They set up gas fields, you know, oil fields invested in it, and these are something that the Chinese have signed contracts and with, and they don't want to withdraw from, although there's pressure, of course, on them by the West to withdraw from them. They don't want to withdraw from them, and they certainly um, feel that they, there is a contract, and they've got a lot of economic things to gain, as well as the, Iran. They've both got a lot to gain economically this way. That's just my example. Now, then, I know it's not a state, of course, but Al-Qaeda, Al 
put out statements about these riots in, um, and the Chinese um, way the Chinese handled them, the suppression of them. Um, and they were very hostile indeed. In, in July, the Algerian-based Islamic Maghreb, which, was, which is sort of allied with um, al-Qaeda, called for reprisals against Chinese workers in North Africa. And, I mean, that's very explosive because um, there are a lot of Chinese workers, again, and getting more. In um, October, an Islamist website and a militant um, cited al-Qaeda um, as calling for a jihad against China. So, I mean, al-Qaeda had no doubt about where its position lay. Now, as far as public opinion is concerned, in the Muslim-majority countries, I think it tended to be mainly negative. I'm not sure about totally, but I think on the whole it's mainly negative. Now, I know Germany, Turkey, well, Turkey is, Norway and those places are not, um, Germany and Norway are certainly not Muslim-majority, but there were some public protests, mainly by Uyghurs themselves who were organising the protests. Germany, there are a lot of Turks, and there are, lot of, there are quite a few Uyghurs. I think it's quite a larger Uyghur diaspora than any except um, Kazakhstan and perhaps a couple of others. Uh, Indonesia, the, the, Chinese, the Indonesian Muslim, Chinese, uh, Muslim Association condemned China, and, and it regretted the silence of Muslim nations. Now, this association is actually quite important because it has been in the forefront of guiding and promoting relations with China and with Muslims in China in particular. They, they had just been to Xinjiang when these riots happened and they were very shocked and their, their, their statement is quite, is quite hostile. There are also two Iranian ayatollahs who took a very, very different view from the Iranian government. Um, the Grand Ayatollah Nasser Makaram Shirazi who's one of the most important um, leaders of Shia Islam, put out a very strong statement in which he condemned the Chinese and uh, called for, said they were attacking the Muslims and, and, um, and uh, wanted resistance against them. Now, the most interesting country from the, among the Muslim-majority countries is Turkey. Why? Because the Uyghurs are Turkic people. There is a Uyghur population in Turkey, you know, diaspora, Turkey has an Islamist-based government at the moment. So, I mean, it's, it's quite complicated, uh, and I'm not, I, I don't claim to be an expert in it, but I'm not going to go into it. But I just want to say that Turkey is, has quite sensitive relations with China and also quite sensitive relations with the Muslims in China. They're not straightforward. The Turkish, Turkish president, Abdullah Gül, visited Urumqi just before the riots, and he said he was very impressed with uh, what he'd seen. This was at the end of June, only a few days before these riots happened. When the riots themselves happened, the Prime Minister, Erdogan, he condemned China. He said it was a genocide. He called it a genocide, very strong language. Mind you, he tends to speak, off, speak loud you know, in the best of times, and then he will often go back on it. He's got very, very strong and forthright opinions. But he also, apart from making this statement, he, he tried to get the United Nations to condemn China. Global Times, which is an English-language Chinese speaking for, for China, uh, mainly the Chinese government, attacked him, that is Turkish Prime Minister Erdogan, as representing an axis of evil. Now, I've asked there, what's the long-term impact on relations? I think since this happened, I mean, it's only a few months ago, I think the situation has somewhat quietened. And I don't think Erdogan will press this 
question now, especially since there are um, economic implications. The United States profile was very low. They didn't make any big attacks. All they did was call for restraint. Obama called for restraint. They didn't criticize China. Um, it was quite unlike the Tibetan situation, where, where, where the complexities of which I've already discussed. Now, I just want to mention these refugees, although I won't say long about them. There's been Uyghur refugees for a while. All I'm talking now is about those that left China after the rise. The World Uyghur Congress reckons there's about 300 of them due to the rise. It may be higher, I don't know. The country that got most of them was Holland, and also Turkey and Cambodia, a few, Central Asian countries. Most of the countries have simply sent them back. Cambodia, there was a case in December last year, 20 of them just were sent back to China, despite there was quite an international opinion that was put forward about that, that they should ex express human rights and not force them to go back to China. But they did. The Cambodian government elected to send them back. Turkey has never said anything. They've kept their mouth shut over this because they don't want too much controversy about it. They want to join the European Union, and you probably saw in the last couple of days they've had a referendum, which they, they, they think is going to, to make this path a little smoother than otherwise. The one that was interesting is Holland, because they don't want these Uyghur refugees. They don't also they don't want to be, seem to be too bad, too unkind to refugees who may be in trouble. And they're really split. Holland has a very good reputation in terms of these human rights, but it's also got a very unstable and uneven relationship with Muslim community within, it, within its, own, its own borders. As far as Holland is concerned, the, the, the reason why they should take them is if they are genuine refugees. The reason why they shouldn't take them is because you're not sure whether they're refugees or not and think you've done a very big... Uh, examination of the situation and this is very complicated I mean it's, you can't just say oh the Chinese must be wrong it's just not as simple as that um, and the Dutch government knows that also the Dutch government wants to get on with China it's been very, it's been very um, conciliatory towards China over the Tibet issue by the way which I could have talked about that's also an interesting issue um, as I understand it as of now about um, half have been sent back and about half are um, likely to be given uh, refuge. There, there, of course, I, when I give those figures, there are some that have not yet been decided. It's all very much in limbo at the moment. But it raises some interesting issues and some interesting uh, dynamics as far as relations between China and Europe are concerned, and especially Holland. The Uyghur situation is Muslim. It's about Muslims. And it's, there is still a lacking a proper leader. I mean, Rebia Kadir gets a lot of marks because of her behaviour in Australia and some other places too. But she's still not a considered... A, she's not a world stage figure the way the Dalai Lama is. And in the West, Islam doesn't have a very good image because that's not the case in Muslim countries. It's quite just the other way, other way around. So, I mean, I, you can't make uh, blanket statements about the, these things. But my um, feeling is that the, the Dalai Lama is likely to indefinitely remain much more influential on the world stage than, um, than Rebia Kadir. Um, I think the examples I've shown suggest that China has in some ways played this quite skillfully, in some ways not so skillfully. And I think it has shown particularly that it is able to learn from its mistakes.
The case of Rebia Cardiere in Australia seems to me to show that. The way that it has got the conciliations from um, conciliatory policy from France and especially Britain, those two are quite, quite important. I think um, speaks well on, on the way they, they've handled the, um, the whole situation. But I think the main point I would want to make is that public image, you know, the, peop- the way in which people view China over these riots is very different from the way governments behave. Governments are constrained by two, especially two things. Firstly, China's economic clout. It's becoming very important in terms of the, uh, the world economy. And also strategic clout, which is growing, and, and especially in certain parts of the world. And that, that of course, doesn't make people like them. Uh, and the question of images, I've already said, I think there's, uh, there is... Um, but it, I mean, it doesn't make everybody hate them either. I mean, it's, I think it's very complex the, the way this um, this all works out. But I would um, I would make that th- th- that's my main conclusion that they have handled it reasonably well in terms of states concerned, um, and reasonably successfully, with some exceptions, of course. But um, in terms of images, I think much less. So. Okay, thank you very much, Colin. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.